Hi there, Tim here from First Reading. So, over here at First Reading Podcast Headquarters, we've found ourselves swamped, and I in particular just moved across the country from Atlanta to Indianapolis, and in the mix of all the logistics for that, I just didn't have time to prep and record a new episode this week. So instead, we're dipping back into the First Reading Vault to bring out an old treasure, the episode we did on Isaiah 5 back in 2019, last time this came around in the three-year RCL cycle. RCL cycle. Sounds kind of like recycle. I guess that's what we're doing this week. Anyway, this was a fun episode, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and all other lovers of the Hebrew scriptures. (laughs) I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we've got insights from the one and only Tim McNinch. So, what do you got for us, Tim? All right, so we're looking at the first seven verses of Isaiah 5. Uh, Do you remember that movie Inception with Leo DiCaprio? Totally. Yeah, so the guys get inside dreams, and then they work their way inside a dream, inside a dream. Yeah. Well, I think this passage is kind of like that because it's a metaphor inside a metaphor. Okay. So the prophet is talking about a farmer and his vineyard, but it's not really about that. It's actually about a husband and a wife. Mm -hmm. But it's actually not really about a husband and a wife. It's about God and Israel. Mm -hmm. So let's see what we can make, uh, what sense we can make of that. On the outer layer, a farmer acquires some fertile land, preps it, and plants choice vines in it. All of this, however, is a fairly standard marriage metaphor. And in fact, the song is framed as a love song that like a a best man might sing for the groom at a wedding. Isaiah calls this groom his beloved in the NRSV, but that could just as easily be translated friend or buddy. The Hebrew word is dod. Anyway. That kind of sounds like dude. Yeah, his dude. (laughs) Anyway, this is like a, a toast to the couple in the hopes for a fruitful marriage. In the toast song, uh, the the best man looks into the future, and uh, his dude has a vineyard. Uh, that is, the vineyard is his lovely bride. He's plowed the ground, cleared out the rocks, raised a tower in its midst, and planted choice vines. This is uh, actually all rather erotic imagery, reminiscent of Song of Songs, you know, plowing the ground, erecting a tower, digging a wine vat, planting crops. Now I'm, now I'm not just getting dude, but like the dude abides imagery. <laughs> now, you, Rachel, you are the body imagery expert. So if you want to elaborate on those, uh, on those images, feel free to. <laughs> but we might have to mark the podcast as explicit. I'm blushing. I'm blushing. <laughs> well, anyway, in ancient context, to the culmination of this song— the expectation after all this quote-unquote planting would be plentiful fruit, that is, many children. And that would be the expected climax of the toast. But just at this point, the best man's song goes off-key. Hmm. Instead of producing grapes, this vineyard produces be'ushim. The NRSV translates this word wild grapes. Uh, but this is actually the only occurrence of that word in the Bible. And its root, the root ba'ash, often means something like to stink like decaying flesh. Mm -hmm. So instead of plump grapes, all this vineyard produces is stinking rot. Mm -hmm. I didn't find a comment on this, but I imagine that uh, this disappointment here is metaphorically speaking about infertility in the marriage, which in the ancient world was usually seen to be a failure on the wife's part. It could also refer to rotten children uh, produced by the marriage, disloyal or otherwise destructive offspring. 
And I, I feel like I should pause here for a quick preaching pitfall. If you decide to do this inception thing and explore this metaphor within a metaphor, you'll need to be cognizant of the realities of infertility on the one hand and wayward children on the other in your congregation. These aren't just metaphorical situations for families in your congregation. So they need to be handled with care and not flippantly. Can I throw one more out there, too? Mm-hmm. I think the the idea of the woman's body as the owned by the husband and his to use or um, make use of is another preaching pitfall if you decide to really elaborate on that metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. So really, in some cases, it might be wiser to simply stay on the agricultural level yeah. <laughs> and just do one level of metaphor <laughs> since the, the, the parable here works uh, mm-hmm. on that level, too. Mm-hmm. But in any case, uh, in verse 3, the prophet switches voices from the best man to the groom, that is, the farmer himself. He calls the people to act as witnesses. What could he have done for the vineyard that he didn't do? Isn't he right then to dismantle the vineyard's walls and tower and let it go fallow? The farmer abandons his care, and it leads to desolation for the unproductive vineyard. Verse 7 is the big pivot where the prophet dispenses with metaphor altogether and reveals that God is the farmer and the vineyard is Israel and Judah. Why is God so disappointed with Israel that it will lead to their destruction? Well, here the prophet relies on some Hebrew wordplay. He says that God waited for justice, mishpat, but instead bloodshed, mispach. God waited for righteousness, tzedakah, but instead a cry of the oppressed. Let me read that, that line in Hebrew so you can hear how that sounds. Vaikav le mishpat vihine mispach. Litzdaka vihine tsaaka. So that's the indictment against Israel here. God's expectations for Israel have been disappointed. God has given them everything that they need to produce a fruitful, godly society, but instead God sees bloodshed and hears the cries of the poor. The lectionary stops there at the end of verse 7, but really the prophet's just warming up. (laughs) The rest of the chapter is a laundry list of woes, laying out the specific charges against them. The accumulation of wealth by a few, which leads to the impoverishment of many, the celebration of comfort and luxury, the dependence on their own resources, and the extortion of bribes from the poor, rather than dependence on God's wisdom and fair treatment of the poor. Just like the farmer abandoned the unproductive vineyard, the prophet warns that God will withdraw divine protection from Israel and desolation is bound to follow. So one more linguistic tidbit here before I suggest a preaching angle. One of the key words in this text is the verb kava, which shows up in verses 2, 4, and 7. The NRSV translates it uh, expected. But the idea there is of waiting, patiently, expectantly. The Hebrew word for hope, tikva, is built from the same root. This is what the farmer does after all his preparation of the vineyard. And it's what God does with Israel, patiently, hopefully waiting in expectation of good fruit. Even though this is a prophetic depiction of judgment, it's not depicting a God who flies off the handle. This is a God who has done everything possible and who has waited patiently for good fruit. The verb kava 
heightens the sense of God's painful disappointment when after all of that work and all of that patience, there's no fruit of justice in Israel. And so a potential preaching angle. My sort of standard approach to doomsday prophecies is to understand them in the context of warning. If there was no hope for redemption, why would God send a prophet? The stark picture of desolation is meant to be a wake-up call to people who have been lulled to sleep by their selfish apathy. In this case, some of the basic social principles of justice that Isaiah calls out are just as relevant in our own day as they were in his. He doesn't take a a laissez-faire attitude towards the concentration of wealth among fewer and fewer individuals to the detriment of so many. The prophet calls out, Hoy! Woe! Woe to you! But I just want to say, be careful not to spend all of your prophetic energy on ills that are out there somewhere in the world. Find ways to speak with a prophetic voice among your own congregation. In what ways is your church spending its energy and cash on enriching itself and ensuring your own comfort rather than seeing to what Isaiah calls in verse 12, the deeds of God? If you want your preaching to have transformative power, you'll need to do a little soul searching as a congregation to listen for the voice of God saying to you, Hoy, wake up, time for a change. And two side tips, these are freebies. A sermon like this is best prepped in conversation with the lay leadership of your church. Where is God steering you together toward justice and righteousness? You don't want to blindside your congregation with a sermon like this. Likewise, if you're preaching difficult prophetic stuff, be sure to include yourself among those in need of repentance. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is the same Isaiah who follows all of these woes to you in chapter 5 with a recollection of his calling in chapter 6 where he says, woe to me, for I belong to a people of unclean lips. So don't preach at your congregation. Preach a call to shared repentance and reaffirmation of your calling to do the deeds of God. That's what I've got. Mm, That was beautiful. I feel like I got to hear a sermon just now, too. (laughs) It also occurred to me as as you were talking that this might be an especially powerful message for those who are in congregations that feel like they're failing. Um... I'm thinking especially of rural and small town churches who might be languishing um, for lack of population size. And yet I think churches are sometimes the only ones who are in the community able to intervene and intercede on behalf of those who are the vulnerable. Um, so, so this is maybe not only just a powerful wake-up call, but also a powerful kind of life-giving call of where are you Mm-hmm. uniquely positioned in your community to give the things that people need. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that, that fits the social context of Isaiah as well. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, this was at a time, this, this tendency towards the concentration of wealth and sort of self-preservation was in a global context of the, the rise of Assyria and then Babylon mm-hmm. and the, the pressure that little old Israel and Judah felt uh, to sort of save their own skin by whatever means. And churches that are struggling can feel that pressure too. We need to concentrate our resources in order to survive. When the call of God is to spend yourselves on the deeds of the Lord, the Mm -hmm. the deeds of God in your community, and and trust that God holds your church's Mm -hmm. future in God's own hands. Well, we will say a special prayer for all you preachers this week who are going to uh, take up this text, and we pray that uh, God speaks through you powerfully. 
Remember, if you like the podcast and you have not yet subscribed, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, to get more past episodes or um, linked up with future stuff as well. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening and happy preaching.